All right, so should we actually start the episode now and not just do our little <laughs> inappropriate pre-show banter? We have to get all of the really bad jokes out before we start recording. We do. We do. I'm, I'll get a steal listed by, from YouTube otherwise. From everything. <laughs> from everything. From everything. Um, but join our Patreon and you can get all, <laughs> and you can get all this content. There, there is no Patreon. Buy our token. Buy our token. <laughs> Oh, no. On FTX. Yeah. <laughs> Exclusive made you think NFTs. <laughs> uh, okay. Did you guys so. see how uh, Reddit, our conservative, like soured on Trump after the NFT thing? Like rah rah no. for like eight years and then Trump dropped the NFTs and just all of our conservative completely 180 on him. Really? Like, that was the line. The line. That was the line. <laughs> yeah, the line. So funny. So I think we have to learn a lesson from that as made you think and put the line before the NFT collection. Wow. They still have a half an ETH floor price. Wow. The Trump collection. Yeah. 10,000 ETH volume. Good Lord. So it's on $17 million in secondary sales. (laughs) So he's only getting like two and a half percent of that, right? 10%. 10%. So, but yeah, it's like he's only made 1.7 million only off of it for like, I mean, that grift. that's not much money for his brand. That's right? true. Like, that's true. I mean, Jack Butcher has made more than that just off of checks in the last like few weeks. Yeah. It's just that why would somebody buy the Trump NFT? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it has to be speculation on a run, maybe. Like people think like it would go up if he does like become the nominee or something. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I just don't understand why somebody would buy it. Or it's market seems like every. Yeah, it seems like everybody's over Trump. Which, yeah. Okay. Although, you know what? I say that, but like, I'm not watching the fucking news. I don't have any idea what yeah. I'm talking about. Like, <laughs> also, I do recall a uh, dinner conversation between us uh, in 2016 where we were like very convinced there's zero chance that Trump wins. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. Is this at the taco place with Charlie or yes. was this a different one? Yeah. Oh, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no. That's where it was. Yep. And we were, we had a little uh, conversation of being so convinced everybody was 100% sure, <laughs> including me. And oh, obviously we were wrong. So please don't take our political speculation seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I think also the three of us watch less news or like pay attention to the news less than we did even at that time. Yeah. So we're even more out of touch yeah, than we sure. were back then. Yeah. Donald more Trump touch. still has the slightly best betting odds for the Republican nominee. Hmm. C- closely followed by DeSantis and then Nikki Haley. Probably I almost feel like the NFT DeSantis. thing could be an inside job going back to topics we were talking about before we started recording. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the, the NFT thing could be like some advisor who's like, please don't let this guy run. And mm, let's oh, launch an sabotage. NFT. Yeah. And, and then he's like, what's an NFT? And they're like, don't worry, you'll make a couple million dollars in royalties off of it. <laughs> and he's like, okay, do it. That's a good conspiracy theory. Like did that. he ever publicly promote it himself? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He has a whole oh, video. Oh, God. Wait, you didn't watch the video? <laughs> no, I didn't watch this video. Oh, <laughs> the video is the best part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, I need to watch this video. See, this is how out of touch I am oh. right now. <laughs> the video is incredible. You have to Should watch we pause the, the recording and let Neil catch up. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. Yes. Um, oh, man. So funny. 
<laughs> well, we are here to discuss The Art of War by Sun Tzu, continuing the uh, Great Book series. So we did a little bit of a break. We're going about every other episode now. Yeah, yeah like great book, I think that's roughly book, the great book, book. cadence we're, we're going for. Yeah, we need to mix yeah. it up. So, yeah, totally. I was shocked at this book, like just diving right in. I was shocked at how modern every tactic felt. Like these were, it, it does feel like largely timeless principles. There are a few which are like, okay, yeah, this probably doesn't apply anymore uh, because they were too specific. But like a lot of the things, especially that were psychological or like about economics were really interesting uh, and really relevant, I felt like. Yeah. Modern and also like applicable even outside of. Oh, yeah. Obviously, business is the is the one that people generally connect it to. But even some interpersonal stuff, obviously, war is zero sum. So the interpersonal connections are much fewer than the business connections. But um, my favorite one that I was thinking about completely independent of war and business was we have heard of stupid haste in war but cleverness has never been associated with long delays. So you can make a mistake by moving fast, but it's very hard to be right by moving slow. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of interesting. So well, it's actually kind of strange because he talks a lot about moving slowly too. Let's see. Or like waiting for the right moment. Yeah. Waiting. Like, yeah. 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 Here this is one of the highlights I had. Uh, the good fighters of old first put themselves beyond the possibility of defeat and then waited for an opportunity of defeating the enemy. I felt like there was a lot of talking about just like waiting until the other. Although, yeah, I guess it goes back and forth. And that's sort of where the confusing or some of the confusing stuff in the book is, is like, you're right that he does seem to talk about like taking the initiative and getting into position and and all of that. But then there's also these elements of like, wait, (laughs) right? Like, Sometimes it's move first. Sometimes it's don't move first. I think that that's what makes it like, these aren't things that are opposites insofar as they're like 180 degrees. They're like 170. It's, I think we talked about this about personality traits on one episode where people who are both very stubborn and very easy to work with. Right. Right. And it's like, you need to move fast, but you also need to be very patient. Well, what's Um, the like Navy SEAL model? Slow is steady. Steady is fast. Is that right? Slow, smooth, smooth is fast. Yes, that's correct. I think that's correct. Right. Yeah. 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 Slow is smooth. Is that what you said? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Slow, smooth, smooth is fast. Uh, There. Yeah. So basically there are a lot of situations where you want to react quickly and start moving. But if in your efforts to move quickly, you end up slowing down the operation. Yeah. Because you make a dumb mistake or you know, you've been rash or something. He, yeah, he does exactly. talk about just waiting for the right moment, but I think the, he also talks maybe not an equal amount, but he also talks about being decisive when the moment is right. right. So not, not delaying or kind of overthinking. Cause there's probably, that's an equal sin probably to being rash and attacking in the, at the wrong time is not attacking when the time is actually right. Yeah. Before we go into more of the quotes, should we like talk about oh, frame context it. a little bit? Yeah. 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 So it's roughly 2,500 years old. I think this is kind of like the the Tao Te Ching where we don't really, like, we're not, like, Sun Tzu maybe didn't write it. It was, like, lessons from him, maybe, like, 
might not have even been a real person. I, we have some notes on this. Uh, yeah. He's credited as the author, but he, he's credited as the author. There was yeah. some doubt onto the authorship, but I think that seems like people think he wrote, like he was a real person and wrote it, but it also might be like things that were attributed to him later just because he was like a famous general and like it was just compiled mm-hmm. over time. Right. That So yeah, it's hard to know. A lot of these books that are around this age or older, it's yeah, just, just like, hard when stuff is this old. Yeah. There's so much. I mean, cause imagine, and, yeah. Imagine what it had to be written on and like in the state to survive, you know, 2,500 years of no digital backups. Right. So it's just right. like on scrolls and, books like floating around in libraries <laughs> you know like and how many copies of their originally been yeah it's, it's actually i mean it's, it's pretty wild that we have almost anything that old yeah yeah let alone so many like great books and stuff it, it also i mean you we've probably said this like 10 times in the show already but it really makes you wonder what didn't survive just for right. simple reason of like there wasn't enough backup or it got destroyed in a fire or in a war or you know, someplace got conquered and they burned every book. Like we probably lost a lot of stuff over the millennia. Yeah. It, it would really only be the, uh, the like atomic habits and the Colleen Hoover books of today that would like survive be the like massive, massive, massively widespread ones. So yeah. that even if 99% of them get wiped out, you still got yeah. a few. Yeah. So going back to the authorship thing, so Sun Woo is apparently what, you know, they used to like, I think the original name that Chinese scholars would call him. And then I think it got changed to Sun Tzu, but Sun Woo. And then, but the doubt is because he doesn't appear in, there's historical books about the time period in which he supposedly lived and his name does not appear. And there's speculation that, the Art of War was actually written in the 4th century BC by Sun Tzu's per, uh, purported uh, descendant, Sun Bin, who appears to be an actual person and was a genuine authority on military matters and may have been the inspiration for the creation of the historical mm. figure Sun Tzu through a form of euphemism. So, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think nobody really knows, though. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just like it's so long ago that I think it's just something there probably won't be a definitive answer on. Which is probably true for a lot of the books around this age. Totally. This book is still... Um, so, you know, going back to how it's used today, it's it's still actually taught at, at West Point for the U.S. Army. I'm sure it's used in other militaries wow. uh, throughout, the, throughout the world. And actually, I think it was the Army or the Marine, Marine Corps that was kind of has like a um, acceptable library for a soldier. And like, this is... This is one of the books in there. Oh, that's cool. So, Where did you yeah. find that? I was just like Googling art of war, modern applications and stuff or something. Went down like a little or modern military, hmm. something like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll dig it up. It's in my. Um, cool. Oh, it actually might be on Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. The Department of the Army in the U.S. through its Command and General Staff College lists the Art of War as one example of a book that may be kept in a military unit's library. Mm-hmm. Oh, so they're just talking about the kinds of books you might find in a military library. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. 
And it's still used as, Art of War is used as instructional material at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in the course Military Strategy 470. And it's also recommended reading for officer cadets at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. Then there's quotes by General MacArthur, Colin Powell. This is all just on the Wikipedia page. And then apparently the KGB used it. It was widely studied and used by the KGB as well. I mean, some of these, like a lot of the things around deception, and I mean, there's a whole chapter about yeah. spies. Yeah. Which is really interesting. I mean, that's a timeless thing, I'm sure. Well, I feel this one's kind of interesting too because it, I don't know, there's something a little bit different with this from some of the other like philosophy esque texts that we've done. I've been trying to think of the right analogy for it because, on the one hand, some of the stuff is like, for lack of a better word, basic or simple, right? Like foundational yeah. military stuff. And it, it almost feels like uh, like this would be part of the like math foundations for somebody who's like going to go very, very deep on military strategy, right? Because like I've seen that criticism before from people who are like, oh, there's like, you know, like, uh, there's not that much good in the book. It's just like very obvious, basic, like military stuff or like, oh, you want the high ground, right? But I feel like that's also why it's valuable and like why it's good because it does kind of lay some of that like philosophical groundwork to then build the more advanced stuff on top of. Yeah. I mean, I I also think like the more this is probably, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I, I, I found over the years, I think like the more the, like, I feel like the older I get, the more I respect the basics and the less I respect like advanced techniques and tactics. I'm like, usually you win or lose because of the basics and the advanced stuff is like, you know, kind of secondary. It's like at the margins, I should say, like, it's not irrelevant, but it is not, it's not the most common reason somebody wins or loses. Like you just lose, you, you lose because you messed up something basic. Right. It's the basics. And then like the intuition you get from experience. Yes. Like in the, in the art of war, he talks around uh, deception and like how you should deceive your opponent. But then he'll also talk about if your opponent is doing blank, it means they feel, you know, whatever, right? Like if they're being loud, it means they feel weak. Or it means if they're waiting for you to uh, attack them, that means they really like their position, right? Th- that, let's use that second example, not the first one. The second one ex- example assumes the opponent is not trying to deceive you, right? Deception is in your arsenal, but not theirs. But in practice, it's actually you're going to make that intuitive call. You like, you know, the general or, you know, the kingdom and you, you know, you, you know, the basics such that you can selectively break the rules that, you know. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So Nat, the, going back to what you're, uh, what you were saying, like, I think the way that I was viewing this is almost like a, not quite a playbook, but like the book that you would need, like kind of the only book that you would really need if you were a general at that time, let's say. Yeah. Um, and it's like, if you master these things or you like, plus obviously your own experience and intuition, you're kind of covered. Like this is the one you should be. Cause, cause the other thing is like, we have such an abundance of information now, you know, we have like unlimited things to go read and spend our time on and, and practice and stuff. But of course we're mostly browsing like Twitter and TikTok and stuff, but you know, we have an unlimited amount of things we could go read. And at that time, I don't think like books were very widely available, even in in this period in China. So I would imagine it's like you get one book. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, when you when you're traveling as a general well, or a soldier or something. Yeah, and I, I guess there is the element of we don't know what else didn't survive. Yeah. But to that point, I mean, there are no other military books on our great books list. It's a good point. I haven't heard of any others, right? Like to to your point, this probably did fill <laughs> like a a gap in the reading market or a yeah. gap in the <laughs> book and information market where it was kind of like, yeah, you could just give this to like a general and this is kind of like, okay, Studious. you know, maybe we don't have yeah. time to do all the training or whatever, but here's kind of your commander's intent. Although what, what would it have been written on back then? I mean, I, the Wikipedia page has this like ancient bamboo, like box thing that would have been pretty hard to carry around. Yeah. That's um, actually a really good point. Yeah. I'm seeing that on Wikipedia as well. Yeah. What was Art of War written on? Yeah, I think it was on these bamboo books. Wow. Yeah, that doesn't seem very portable. No. But I mean, if you had like a huge army, you could maybe stash one in with everything else and it wouldn't be too bad. But yeah, it it wouldn't be like today where, you know, you could carry it around in your pocket. Um, Yeah. And the reason I was thinking like playbook-esque book is because certain things are actually very prescriptive. And certain things right. are more like strategies. So the prescriptive things, like one that I thought was interesting was his points about birds. Like if birds are all like, if they're if they're landing in a certain spot, that means that area is empty. If they're all rising up at the same time, you're about to be ambushed. Like yeah, yeah. those are very prescriptive, like very specific things. Not Those are not general strategies, but then there's so many things which are also much more general. Right. Neil, I know you have this copy. Matt, did you yeah. also read this one or did you read a different one? Uh, yeah, I've got a slightly different one. Okay. So this one has the Art of War in the raw text and then it has uh, one with a lot of commentary in it. Yeah. And in the commentary in the opening, I'm just like scanning it now to refresh my memory because it's, it's been a few weeks. It suggested, if I'm recalling correctly, that this was not written necessarily for a military audience, but was written to articulate his principles for the king with whom he was acquainted with at the time. Oh, interesting. I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to like fact check that at the end. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it looks like he was in service of Ho Lu in the kingdom of Wu and started writing the book towards the end of his career. And uh, here, I'll just read a couple of these sentences. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is obvious that any attempt to reconstruct even the outline of Sun Tzu's life must be based almost wholly on conjecture. With this necessary proviso, I should say that he probably entered the service of Wu about the time of Ho Lu's accession and gathered experience, though only in the capacity of a subordinate officer, during intense military activity which marked the first half of the prince's reign. If he rose to be a general at all, he almost certainly he certainly was never on an equal footing with the three above mentioned. There were three generals who were very great uh, hmm. mentioned earlier. He was doubtless present at the investment and occupation of Ying and witnessed Wu's sudden collapse in the following year. Sun Wu was thus a well-seasoned warrior when he sat down to write his famous book, which according to my reckoning must have appeared towards the end rather than the beginning of Ho Lu's reign. If, this, if these inferences are approximately correct, there's a certain irony in the fate which decreed that China's most illustrious man of peace should be contemporary with her greatest writer on war. Uh, that's just it. I think Confucius and uh, Sun Tzu around the same time, if I'm not mistaken. 
Huh. At any rate, yeah, the earlier part of the paragraph was the relevant one, which is it's that would also explain like some of the gaps, right? Like this, I wouldn't. This doesn't feel like a complete book, even for contemporaries at the time, because it doesn't talk anything about like the actual act of fighting. It doesn't talk about like you know how you train or raise a military or like equip them or what the formation is. It's just, here's how you deploy, here's how you view the enemy and here's how you project strength. Uh, right. But it sort of misses that, that kind of the central uh, core piece without which this would feel incomplete. And that's, that's what brought to mind that it might actually have been meant for a, for the King as the audience rather than other mm. uh, military leaders. That's interesting. Yeah. Is that true about the Prince also? Machiavelli book. I know we're going to do that later, but, and I haven't read it. I've heard multiple interpretations of the prince. Yeah. Cause it's like, if you think about books before, right, it wasn't meant for really a mass market audience because most people didn't know weren't literate. Yeah. So you probably had a very limited audience and your audience is probably your patron <laughs> who is. Yeah. So this, for you. this says that Machiavelli dedicated the prince to uh, Lorenzo de' Medici, who was the current ruler of Florence. And so Machiavelli was writing about how to stay in power. I've also heard that the prince was written as a, like a satire, like a joke. Oh. <laughs> but I don't know if that like holds up. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that one in a few years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I was like a warlord and Sun Tzu had written this for me and it was this good... I would have probably tried to keep it a secret. Like the fact that it has survived yeah, the fact that it got out, is, right? is even point. more miraculous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that was the, you know, maybe Sun Tzu actually did all the opposite of these things, right? They're like, oh, <laughs> we'll send the book around. Like, you're just to win. <laughs> they're always attacking from the low ground, right? <laughs> <laughs> Do not deceive your opponent. <laughs> <laughs> It's like that other book we were talking about, you know, it's just a psyop. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> that did, I did think, I think uh, this was in third chapter, second chapter, something like that, or section, I guess. The one part where he was talking about, and the quote that I wrote down was to secure ourselves against defeat lies in our own hands, but the opportunity of defeating the enemy is provided by the enemy himself, where mm -hmm. he's kind of talking about like, you can't, mm you like you can't do anything to win you can do only do stuff to not lose and then the uh, enemy will basically present you the opportunity to win if they make a mistake it's sort of like uh in our game of tennis right it's very much like you're you're playing against yourself yeah and you you have to not make a mistake longer than the other person has to not make a mistake yeah right i i like every other basic always online person and very into pickleball now <laughs> and we've like we've taken one lesson and one of the first things the the coach that we worked with said is he was like it's like if you're mostly playing against other people who aren't pros the best way to win is to just not make errors he's mm -hmm. like you don't even have to worry about getting like crazy shots in or you know getting it perfectly on the line or getting as much power as possible he's like just don't hit it out because they will yeah. screw up eventually. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's a good point, right? Yeah. True. That's probably true things. in most, that's probably true in, in, in most things until you're at like the highest level of something. Yeah. 
Well, that, that idea of forced versus unforced errors, I think, is really what distinguishes like top players versus more casual ones in almost any field. It's yeah. that way with chess too, right? It's like you eventually have to, you can't just wait for the other person to like, you know, miss that you are threatening one of their pieces, right? You have to force them to give things to you. Yeah. Uh, but And I know like in football, the team with the most turnovers almost always loses. Mm. Same reason. It's like that's typically an unforced error. Right, right. And yeah, it's the same idea. What's up? I don't even know what a turnover is. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fumble fumble and interception. Like you basically gave the ball to the other team. Okay. Yeah. And it's true in basketball too, actually. Basketball has turnovers as well. It's like, I mean, and sometimes those are the result of like good plays, but usually it's the result, especially until you're at like the pro level. It's usually the result Mm -hmm. of you not seeing somebody when you pass them the ball and there's another person in between or you just telegraphed where you're going to put the ball or you just dropped it and you know or it went off your foot or something like there's all sorts of mistakes that you can make but yeah but it's like typically you know in the pro level yeah people are making like great steals and like making great plays but it's not until you get to that level that probably you need to make those kinds of plays i mean i'm not saying college basketball isn't like i'm sure people are really good and making good plays at all levels but it's like more true the higher up you go, I'm thinking. I, I also think this is true when you're very zoomed in. Like if you think of, I don't know, search engines, Google was biding its time, not making any mistakes, da 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 da. And if you view like progress as like a stepwise function, as long as they're on that step, they win as long as they don't make the mistake until the next step. And then now you have like ChatGPT, OpenAI, mm-hmm. all this, and it's just a completely next step thing. And in war, the same idea could basically be, you know, you're fighting with like fourth gen planes and, you know, that kind of equipment. And that's fine if you're against a similarly equipped opponent, don't make a mistake mm-hmm. until the fifth gen plane arrives. And then it's like, well, not making a mistake isn't quite enough. Now you need to move up the stepwise. Um, and I, it feels like the same should be true for sports, though I assume it's less stepwise. But if you do look no, at I like, don't think I think sports is know, harder because it's like more of a fixed rule set, whereas te- anything that involves technology is not right. So like war, you could have, let's say the leap from swords to guns or like, you know, just land-based warfare and sea-based warfare to planes. Like, you know, then maybe the next step, like, you know, robot or drone-based warfare or space-based warfare. Like there's, you know, there's these different like tech leap functions and the same thing with, I mean, your chat GPT and Google example, but sports is like, sports is like there's an agreed set of rules. It's like, Uh, you can't really Uh, be like, Oh, we're going to, I mean, I guess steroids might be like the one time that that has changed, but I don't know. It's like everything else is kind of like too, um, it's it's a very controlled environment, which is why it probably doesn't apply as much. Yeah. I had something slightly different in mind, which is if you look at like fast running or like high jump and you look at it over like a 50 year time scale, it's like the folks winning gold 50 years ago wouldn't even be at the Olympics now. Right. Mm. But that's not that's not so much stepwise. That's still like a gradual ramp up. But yeah, you can't like not mess up in that case. You still are constantly leveling up. Right. Um, I wonder what the variance is and if that's changed between like the fastest, let's say the fastest 10 runners 50 years ago versus the fastest 10. Like, is the variance still actually about the same on a percentage basis or is Mm. it because I know they're all faster, right, on an absolute basis. But then are they like are basically people linearly getting better at the same rate or was it like, you know, is the fastest person like 10% relatively faster than they were 50 years ago? Like, that's an interesting question. I'm sure somebody Uh, knows the answer to that. (laughs) 
a good video we should throw in the notes is the gold gymnast. Uh, I think sometime in the seventies, like Olympic gold. Um, oh yeah. She of, does like the one little flip. Yeah. It's like the two bars. Like what's that called? Like the uneven bars or. Oh, I'm thinking oh, yeah. of a different one, but yeah. Okay. Uh, but yeah, we're going to just throw that in there and then compare it to the same one. There's like a little montage thing on YouTube and it's just incredible. The difference It's like two different That's sports crazy. almost. To go back a couple of seconds, like there, uh, Neil was talking about something around like avoiding war. Or, like I forget exactly the reference you made, Neil, but there was a quote it reminded me of, which is like victory is best when it's with minimal cost. So like much mm-hmm. of the book about war is about like actually avoiding war. Uh, and, oh yeah, you were talking about biding your time. Yeah, right? um, and it's like the, the quote is the highest form of generalship is to balk the enemy's plans. The next best is to prevent the junction of the enemy's forces. The next is to attack them in the field. And the worst is to besiege walled cities. So like in, in, in increasing amounts of order and conflict, uh, they get worse and worse. Whereas it's kind of counterintuitive for a military tactician that like your ideal should be to completely avoid what feels like the military part, like the combat part of a war. Yeah. There was a, actually, this uh, was on Jocko's podcast, like in the very beginning was uh, he covered Art of War. Like it was one of the early episodes. I don't remember which one. And I just remember like, I mean, I listened to it so long ago, but there was like one thing that I actually remember from that episode, which was because he kept harping on it was indirect approach is what he kept Mm. calling it. Right. And it's like a big theme of Art of War. And he was applying it to things like interpersonal conflict. Like, for example, this besieging walled cities thing is like you're going after head on somebody's most entrenched position and you're just like trying to brute force them. Like imagine, I don't know, somebody who's on their like, let's use like a, I don't know. What's like a non-controversial, everything's controversial now. <laughs> let's say somebody's on like their fifth booster and you're going to go after them for the like vaccine, right? Like head on, you're going to be like, oh, this is causes this or whatever. And like, you're never going to change their mind. And that's kind of the example, like types of examples he was bringing up was just like, you can't, you're never going to change someone's mind with the direct approach. It's like the worst possible approach to try to, you know, attack someone's position. And so his point was like, you know, this, if you apply art of war tactics to changing someone's mind or a debate or convincing somebody, these like indirect approaches are not, not taking them head on when they want to take you head on is actually like a really interesting and useful tactic. Hmm. I'm horrible at it. If somebody baits me, I'm very bad at not taking the bait, but I'm, uh, it's something to learn. <laughs> I've never seen you do that. Yeah. Not, I feel like I'm good on social media about not doing it. Cause I don't want to just sit yeah. on my phone debating somebody, but in person, I feel like I'm very bad at not taking the bait. <laughs> yeah, we got to bait you sometime in one of these episodes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've been baited on these episodes before, like to go into certain topics where I'm like, why am I talking about this? But I'm going to do it anyway. No one's debating me, but I can get baited into talking about topics. You've been baiting while we're recording? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's too low effort. (laughs) That one can stay in. (laughs) <laughs> it was it was worth it to watch a deal try to hold back the laugh. <laughs> uh, have we graduated to video on YouTube yet? 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, we're, well, we're not. We got to change deal. how we're editing so that we can uh, do the video. But we're not doxing with this background. The deal. No. No. He's no. got his shade drawn now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not letting any spy balloons see him now. <laughs> uh, you got to be careful about those spy balloons. <laughs> They're sneaky. <laughs> Yeah, no, <laughs> they just follow the wind. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows where that's going to go? Huh? <laughs> uh, so the five essentials for victory then are he will win. Use spy balloons. <laughs> <laughs> okay, segue. fine. We'll get back on topic. What a segue. <laughs> what a segue. <laughs> <laughs> just brute forcing the segue. I'm like, all right, here it is. <laughs> That's a direct approach uh, there. But it works. I gotta do the side door approach. approach. Here, yes. yeah, keep going. I'll figure it out in a minute. <laughs> mm. yeah, okay. I did like the five essentials for victory though, if you wanted to, to go ahead and continue. Uh, yeah, we can we can do that. Uh he will win who knows when to fight and when not to fight. He will win who knows how to ha- handle both superior and inferior forces whose army is animated by the same spirit throughout all its ranks. He will win who prepared himself, waits to take the enemy unprepared, and who has military capacity and is not interfered with by the sovereign. I also wonder if that last line was dropped in there because his audience was the king. He was like, oh yeah, we'll win if you stay out of my way. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, that was funny. <laughs> I think there's like a definite non-zero chance that he did that on purpose <laughs> yeah by the way this is a timeless rule the sovereign yeah, stays not, out of the way we win it's in the book i don't know what to tell you i don't know who wrote this book it was my yeah. grandfather maybe, maybe all the generals like this book because of that rule being in there too they would like show their kings they'd be like see you just stay out of my way we'll do well it's one of the five essentials for victory exactly <laughs> Well, it is uh, one of those things. I've heard Jocko talk about this too, right? Like that idea of commander's intent, right? Hmm. Like the, the military operator, a tactical unit operates best when it has like a high level goal and then it's free to just execute on that goal. So that could be kind of what uh, Sun Tzu's getting at here too, right? It's like you give us a goal and then we go do it, right? Don't, right. don't micromanage, which... I feel like it's generally pretty good advice for a competent team. Yep. Do you guys remember the part about like flags and like you got to like beat the drum and like get everybody related to uh, he will win whose army is animated by the same spirit throughout all its ranks? I'm trying to find the quote for it now, but it was something around the lines of like getting everyone fired up using like flags and drums, but I can't find it now. Yeah, I don't have anything highlighted like that. Yeah, same. I'll see if I can find it. While you're looking for that, I think the superior and inferior forces thing is uh, also interesting, where superior forces are kind of a invitation to not engage with them head on because you're going to lose. And then the inferior forces, it's like knowing that you have a superior force and trying to find a way to, to take them on at that point. And then there were a lot of things that were related to that about turning a superior force into a inferior force by splitting it up. And I think like, I mean, I haven't looked into or read that much about the Vietnam War, but just everything that I've have seen about that, it seems like the Viet Cong did a 
like amazing job of doing that. Like they were not technologically superior, not superior in numbers either, but they just did a lot of splitting up of U.S. forces. I feel like that's what you always hear about the American Revolution too. Was that the like American citizenry just had way better guerrilla tactics, and the British were just like trying to march in formation all the time and would get like split up and picked off, even though you know the Americans were like much had quite a bit less firepower. Yeah, yeah, and then I mean you've heard the same stuff about Iraq too, with, right? Especially like after the initial kind of like uh, arguably easy takeover. Then the guerrilla tactics started, and that was a much different uh, totally. type of war. Yeah, because the thing is, there's nothing to attack with a guerrilla. Like if you're fighting a guerrilla war and you're the yeah. you know quote unquote superior army, they have a big target to attack, and you don't really have any. You have like a you're attacking like a ghost, just keeps shifting and moving, and no stable position to go after. Yeah, plus they know the terrain much better. Yeah, yeah, you're on their turf. Oh, yeah. I mean, he yeah. talked about that a lot too in this uh, in the book about um, being far from your supply trains and like being like when you're in enemy territory, you should forage off of their territory and like, yeah, 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 like eat their food and yeah, pick their fields and all that. I thought yep. that was pretty interesting. Actually, on that note, there was one other thing in here about it costs ten thousand pieces of silver or whatever to like maintain an army. I I can't remember where I was reading this, but that apparently hasn't really changed oh wow since this time period like that that's one of the ways to measure the uh anti-inflationary benefits of gold throughout history is that the the gold cost to maintain an army in ancient rome was about the same as the gold cost to maintain a modern military today wow so it's like it which is which i think is like pretty crazy right and how does that how does that shake out because like something like a like a stealth bomber right those things are worth more per pound i, I think it's for like an infantry man specifically okay. right okay. like I, I think you know discounting crazy machinery and stuff like that yeah. it's like to pay for a soldier's wages got it it's about okay. the same amount of like gold today as it was okay like two thousand years ago that's really interesting yeah. wow i haven't fact checked that super carefully i think i heard it from taylor but so he's, blame. A, he's a trusted source. Yeah. Even blame assuming it's correct, right? Like today war is so much more than soldiers wages, right? Like that right. would be, you know, without technology and everyone far from home and all know, aircraft carriers. And Okay. A deal. Fine. Yeah. I thought it was cool. I'm oh sorry. no, no, no. I'm not. <laughs> it's more of like a general remark on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the the other thing on uh, strength and weakness that I thought was interesting was if you're attacking a weaker force, don't corner them because if they mm-hmm. have no way out, they will like really fight, fight to the death. So you always want to yeah. leave them a way out so they give up. But if you are the inferior force, then you want to get cornered because then no one will try to escape because they'll know the only way out is to win. For the uh, inferior superior forces bit, that was the one that that the latter part was very counterintuitive that you would want to corner your own. You'd army. want to be cornered. Yeah. 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 I, I guess that's votes. true, especially of a general, because otherwise your own troops might like, they're going to fight to the death and be much more motivated. Cause I'm guessing in this era it was mostly conscripts, right? Like people who are essentially drafted. 
probably. I'd be surprised if it was like a volunteer army yeah. at that time. So probably everyone's thinking like, how do I get home essentially? And if you're cornered, it's like, well, if you want to get home, you have to fight your way out of this. Fight your way out. Yeah. Which is one way to do it. Um, and then I guess leaving your enemy in escape lets those less motivated soldiers like be like, oh, I'll just leave through this thing because there's an yeah. escape route. Yeah. Well, it's probably going to be easier to pick them off too while they're running than if they're yeah. standing and fighting. There was also that section, I think it was in the same section about um, if your opponent's crossing a river, like don't attack them as, as you're waiting on the other side of the river. Like don't attack them before they start crossing. Wait till half their people get it, oh. get into and across mm. and then attack them. So they're split up. Yeah. That was really, that was really interesting too. It's like a very opportunistic. Totally. Uh, yeah. The other thing I had never thought of from a framing standpoint was chapter 11 the nine situations where mm. he talks about like dispersive ground, facile ground, contentious ground is like a whole list of them. As a quick example, it's if you've penetrated into hostile territory, but no great distance, then it's facile ground or the ground, the possession of which imports great advantage to either side is contentious ground. And then he like lays out strategies for like each of those nine types. Yeah. Of ground. Yeah. And that's where I, uh, I know sort of like what you were saying before a deal about ha- this being written for a king, but to the point of how this could be just a useful reference text for a general too, right? It's like, if you have all those memorized, then you can probably pretty quickly look at, you know, whatever situation you're in and have a good list of possible next steps in your head, right? It's like, oh, okay, we know that we're on dispersive ground, right? Or we're on facile ground. And so we should do like this thing right now right like it, it it is almost like how to self-helpy in that sense at least in this part with how prescriptive it is i wonder like i guess thinking now for you with like pickleball like i don't think i'd be able to boil soccer or squash down to something this simple right like the nine situations Wars, I, mean, I would say, is 100x more complex, but something like the positioning of even like soccer players on a field relative to where I am, relative to the ball, relative to the score, relative to the morale. Like, no, you probably just, have some general rules, though. You could probably break it down. I mean, I don't know. Rules, right? I don't know soccer or squash well enough yeah. to say what those rules would be. But I mean, it's like for I mean, tennis, could, for example, you would in general, you would hit the ball cross court because the net is the mm-hmm. lowest at that point and you have the most distance. So your chance of hitting long or hitting in the net go down if you're going cross court. So if you watch a tennis match, largely they're hitting backhand to backhand if they're both righty or forehand to forehand. You rarely will go down the line, but when you do, that's like an attacking move typically. Yeah. And it's like, but there's like these rules, right? There's like times you would go down the line and there's times you wouldn't. And it's like, they're situational largely. Times you would come to the yeah. net, times you would stay back. And yeah. people can break those rules as they get, you know, you know, break them, I guess, as they master them. But there are definitely situational rules for that sport. I don't know about, you know, other. I mean, I know basketball decently well and basketball is the same kind of thing. Like, you know, places you would you would set up and plays you can run you, and stuff like that, like pick and roll. Yeah, if you and, think about it on a really high level, right? It's like, okay, are you attacking or defending? Yeah. Right. And then are you like, you know, are you defending in enemy territory? Are you defending in neutral territory? Are you defending in like home territory? Right. I'm just thinking of like a soccer field, right? Yeah. You could like, you could kind of break it down that way right and then it's like okay you know it's is is the goal like 
holding the line or is it like retaking the advantage, right? I feel like you can kind of like branching tree it, it down from there and then just stop at some arbitrary point because for him, he probably could have done, you know, a thousand types of ground. But, that's that's more so what I mean is like, how do you yeah. boil that list down to these are the just the essential ones. I suppose I'm mm. not good enough at soccer or squash to to do that. Like right now, my Maybe, list yeah. would probably be like 25 things, right? Yeah. And it feels like the art of squash should be shorter than the art of war. <laughs> if you're like really good at it, right? Like, <laughs> Well, but also, I mean, you know, we, none of us have any military expertise, right? And so somebody who like is good in the military might look at this list and be like, wow, this is like, this doesn't really cover much of anything, right? And so the like the art of squash might be like, you know, oh, if you're defending, defend, you know, if you're attacking, attack, right? And if if you had never played, you'd be like, ah, yes, right? Like, (laughs) Yeah, or if you yeah. have like a two on one or like a three on two or something, attack. If you have a two on yeah, three, yeah. bide your time. Like <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Retreat to safe territory with the ball. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. This is good advice. Right. And the soccer players like shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a chapter deal that I don't remember which exact one it was, but you, you might remember where the commentary in, in our version of the book, the comment the mm-hmm. commentator was like there, he, I think Sun Tzu laid out like, I don't know, five or six different situations. And then the commentator was like, this is laughably incomplete. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was like... <laughs> Let me find it. It was near the beginning of the chapter, too. There's no doubt that this is exceedingly reductive. I'm just curious, like... Where why is it still so... Well, no, no, why is it still so useful, right? Like, is it just that is what we said at the beginning where like people just forget the basics too easily, but that doesn't really seem, that seems like a simple response as well. I also think there is some of this, uh, it seems like from the way that at least when we were digging into the history of the book itself, that maybe some of it was pieced together over the years and just like became like there, like for example, there's the more strategic, like bigger picture chapters and those feel more timeless than the ones that are more prescriptive. Mm-hmm. yeah that's definitely true yeah so it almost makes you wonder were they written at the same time even or was it like oh i wrote like i want to add something to the art of war and like over time it just kind of became this bigger volume than it originally was yeah kind of like got other things added into it as it went yeah i also wonder if you just get so zoomed into it when you're actually an expert that the zoom out is rare as like a useful anchor yeah. If I think about hard. things I'm good at, it's like I, I could see someone just reminding me of a thing and I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like meaning you you would almost think it's too basic to even think about. Yeah, I mean we've been playing a lot of squash recently, for example. And I wouldn't say I'm good at squash, but there are times where I get like very into a specific like you know, there's a handful of us who play and everyone plays a little bit differently. So I'll notice like I play differently based on who my opponent is. And actually, right. there's like very basic things I should never violate. Like if they're near the front wall, I should always hit it over their head to the back, right? Whereas like sometimes I'll get like a little fancy and hit it in a corner or do this other thing. But it would be useful if someone reminded me, they're like, just go over his head. Like just forget whatever it is you're doing, put it over their head. Uh, like, yeah. yeah, maybe that's just the value, right? It's just basics. Yeah, it's almost like it's like that thing where if you're a, if you're an expert, it's hard. It's sometimes hard to be a teacher, if you're an expert mm-hmm. too, yeah. because you're 
yeah, it's like you don't remember what it was like to be a beginner. So right. yeah, things that you are um actually did you did have either of you guys ever felt that like now that you're I mean all of us are kind of much deeper into our careers, it's like when you talk to somebody who's new in doing what you have done or like are you know are doing. And I don't know if you've had that situation where you're just like talking to somebody and you explain something, they have like no idea what you're talking about because you skipped over all yeah. the basic steps. Yeah. I, I actually just had this happen two weeks ago. There's uh, for like, you know, product design process, or like product development process, at least internally, we have a phrase we'll use to decompose the problem. And like the sort of internal lingo is like decomp and you break the problem down to its constituent parts, which is like a ex- very vague and kind of a useless definition. So all these new people join the company and they're like, what does it mean to like be in a decomp or to decomp a thing or so on? Uh, so we had a talk where we were trying to define it and it took us like six hours to put together a 30 minute <laughs> talk because we just realized wow. there were like all these infinite ways of defining the thing. And we had all just started treating it as this intuitive thing and it took us a long time to find what the, the consensus definition was. Uh, and it was actually a very elaborate, it depends. Um, we narrowed it down to the point where it was useful, but it took us a long time. Hmm. And it, it, we're basically trying to define like a decomposition is like that you have a vague thing and presumably you might be able to build a product in it or a feature or something, but the next steps are unclear and the problem definition is unclear and you don't really have a hypothesis and you come out of it with a hypothesis that's testable and next actions for like the designers, product people and devs. Uh, but the process that those connects those two is like infinitely variable. Right. Even now, I'm like struggling to get it into like a 30 second explanation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised the company didn't already have like a thing for that. Well, it's, it's just sort of emerged of a, organically. Uh, a thing as in like a, a talk like or a, definition? Yeah, yeah, like a like a definition talk training resource. Like it's it's it. not really like unique to Palantir or any okay. company. Everyone does it. Everyone calls it something a little bit different. It's it. almost like a prerequisite, but to just doing the job. Cool. Um, yeah, I had I had a similar experience. Somebody who was like very into fitness and was debating trying to do like fitness Instagram stuff, but had never done any kind of like audience building like internet personality type stuff before mm. was kind of like, and I was talking about doing the TikTok stuff and whatever. And he was like, okay, so like, how do you like figure out what to make for the algorithm? You know? And I was like, I was like, I have no idea how to explain this. <laughs> like for, for somebody who is like, you know, like never done, you know, online content to like play around with that. I was like, well, you, you watch some stuff and then you, you you figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> do it. Like it was the most useless <laughs> response ever. I had like I, I was completely like stuck for how to explain it. So you have some sense of what people would or would not like, and that's very hard to define as it is. And you have some sense of what you know and what you haven't seen covered, and what like yeah the yeah next thing. Like yeah, and it's kind of it, like I remember yeah. we used to have this experience in college, a deal where we would be evaluating people's like PowerPoint presentations mm-hmm. and they would have mixed, they would have mixed colors and mixed fonts and we could see it like immediately, but they couldn't even tell because yeah. like their eyes hadn't been trained for it yet. And it's yeah. you know to, to some people, and this is probably even more true for you now than either of us, right? It's like, you can see those little 
like inconsistencies or you can see those little things that are just like completely invisible to most people. And as you get more and more skilled, that list gets bigger and bigger. I've sent things to a deal before and then he'll respond with like, oh, I hate that font. Like that's like his first text back about something. And I'm like, that's not what I was texting you about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You're to your point. His eye is just so trained for stuff like that. Yeah. I had this conversation with another writer last week too, where I was, uh, we were talking about book drafting and getting feedback. And I was saying that I almost feel like it's less helpful to get feedback from other writers because they don't know how to read like a normal person anymore. Like Mm. most people, when they read, they just read, right? Like they just want to enjoy the thing they are reading and, you know, like stare at dead trees and hallucinate for a bit. And if you're, but if you're like a writer, you read it and you're like, ah, this like word choice could have been better. Like, oh, you know, the sentence structure is not quite right. Like, uh, you know, this is a little inconsistent. Like it's almost impossible to turn off that part of your brain, but that's not really how most people read. So a writer will inevitably give tons of feedback that like doesn't matter that much because they just like can't help themselves. But they would probably that give feedback totally that a reader out, would yeah. never be able to give you also. But it might not right. be useful, there's like a yeah. there's like a balance in between yeah. the two, right? Like it, it, and to some extent and this is somewhat true with design too, I think, right? It's like the good design is the design you don't notice, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, uh, yeah. y- you notice when it's bad, right? When it like jars you and messes with your interaction and gets in your way. It's like the the good writing is the writing you don't notice because you're just like enjoying the experience and you're not thinking about the words they're using or any of that stuff. And like you only really notice when it's bad, whatever bad is for you. You almost want the like non writer audience to tell you what they don't like and then give yeah. that to a writer. And be like, yeah. why don't people and ask them, like this? Like, yeah. why doesn't this work? Exactly. Yeah. I've heard that feedback a bunch before too, where it's like, if somebody tells you something isn't working, they're almost always right. But if they tell you why it isn't working, they're almost always wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so actually like, very similar to product. I believe like, that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. tell me the issue. Tell me the workflow. And then I will, your job is to do the workflow. My job is to do the product. Well, <laughs> Yep. Yeah. That's, that's what I've been telling people for editing the second draft too. I've been like, just tell me where you get bored or where you get confused. And then like, I'll take it from there, but don't worry about like trying to tell me what to change mm. with it. Yeah. I did try that. I was like, Hey, what that's if fine. you did this? <laughs> <laughs> well, your, your, your feedback was right. Like that was the good kind where it yeah, was yeah. just like, I really, really like this. You should delete this thing. And I was like, perfect. <laughs> that's exactly what I need. <laughs> uh, that's yeah, so there's almost this, I guess, issue of being too zoomed in to some yeah, things yeah. to be able. I wonder too, like, do you guys have, have you noticed this where sometimes if you're too zoomed in or you've like done something too much, you don't enjoy it as much or you're like too nitpicky about mm. it? Like, like I'm not using your writing example. You know, there might be times where it's like somebody else really enjoys a book and then you're just like, I can't read this because the word structure is too weird or like the sentence structure yeah. is too weird. I, I've thought about that with coffee a lot. Because I got really, really into coffee over COVID and became like a huge coffee snob. And it it it's like mostly a bad thing because then 95% of the time when you get coffee anywhere else, you're just like annoyed. Yeah. It's not good anymore. It's like, yeah, they like burnt the beans. Uh, they didn't like foam this cappuccino very well. I like, got oh, their milk's <laughs> shit, right? Like it doesn't help that I'm like already a unhealthily critical person. And so... <laughs> It's like, and you add like getting to know something very well and then like, okay, cool. You just like can't enjoy something that you used to be able to enjoy anymore. 
Maybe that's just a me problem. I don't you know, know. I know it's also a, I know no, this is a character flaw. It's okay. <laughs> no, it's I think lucky sometimes to not have as well refined, like well developed of a yeah. taste in something. Like I've had wine with people who know wine really well, and it's like, mm. and I'm the exact opposite. I enjoy wine. I don't dislike wine at all, but I have no palate for wine. Like I can not tell you much besides like the big in your face like flavors. I can't tell anything subtle about the wine, and but I like. Like the range of wines I like is like, I'll, I'll like most wines. Like it's very rare for me to be like, oh, I don't like that wine. But somebody who knows a lot about wine, it's like they need a wine that's good. Like they can't have, you know, the Trader Joe's $4 wine and be like, yep. yeah, this is wine. So yeah, there's something to be said for not being as zoomed in to something. Totally. But, yeah. But it's also fun to be able to be an expert in something too. It is fun. So Yeah, yeah. I remember when Nat and I were in Napa in 2016 with Zach Lip. We got like a high-end bottle of wine, like a $50, $60 bottle and like a $5 bottle. And no, no, you're, you're underselling the some story. Details here. <laughs> we got six bottles of wine. <laughs> two of them two are high-end, high end, two middle, and two low-end. Made you drink. And, Made you uh, drink. <laughs> We played liar's poker for like four <laughs> hours straight and drank all six bottles of wine. <laughs> we drank them from like the expensive ones down to the cheap ones. Yep. And we're like in the middle of the cheap bottle. I think it was either Nat or Zach was like, this is pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yep, we don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could probably really only taste that difference in the first glass. In the beginning. Yeah. 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 Falls off pretty quickly. And you're just like, this is alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. I feel like we didn't really cover much of the book. I'm looking at my notes. And there's like a few few things that I would I'd still want to tap on real quick. Okay. Let's we do a couple done. rapid fire ones. Yeah, I have one on. rapid fire one, but go ahead, Adil. Mine is the five dangerous faults which may affect a general. From oh, that was good. I had eight. that highlighted too. Yeah. So the five faults are <clears throat> recklessness which leads to destruction, cowardice, which leads to capture, a hasty temper, which can be provoked by insults, a delicacy of honor, which is sensitive to shame, and over-solicitude for his men, which exposes him to worry and trouble. I think these are pretty good general failures of leadership, right? Yeah. Like not just military. Yeah. Failures of life. Yeah. The one I didn't quite track was delicacy of honor which is sensitive to shame i think it means that if you think highly of yourself or it could mean the uh, yeah that i think is definitely one interpretation i think the other interpretation maybe it's the other end of the spectrum too of like having your honor insulted but not doing anything about it you'd probably also lose your your army the respect of your army hmm hmm well, I, I'm thinking about the 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 sensitive to shame mm. part of it, right? Because it's like, as I as I interpreted it, it was almost like if you lose a battle, you need to be okay, right? And if you think you're like, oh, I'm this super honorable, like esteemed general, uh, yeah. then <laughs> the shame of one loss could destroy you. But you need to be yeah. able to kind of like take it on the chin and keep fighting. That makes sense. Um, yeah, because if you're going to just feel shame from losing that one time, then you've lost the war too, not just the one exactly. Battle. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's, the, a, little, oh, there's oh, a little bit ahead. of startup ethos in there, right? It's like, yeah, <laughs> embrace failure. Yeah. yeah, 
That's true. Well, the over solicitude of his men thing is also interesting where it's like, if you are managing a team, which is obviously what a general is doing just on a large scale, you almost don't, you, you kind of have to thread the needle between being too close and too distant from yeah. them. And I, I'm too- sure you guys have heard this from friends who run companies too, right? It's like, that's always mm-hmm. a conflict. It's like, how close can you be with your employees? Yeah. Yeah, because and I think is if you if you get too close, that'll cra- cloud your judgment. If you need to change the team or let someone go totally. or something, then it's it's really hard to do that if you're too close with someone. Um, but you also can't be so aloof and distant that you're not uh, connected in any way to them. So it's right. like there's there's like a yeah. shifting target you have to keep trying to stay over. The the other rapid fire one I had that I thought was really interesting was. Uh, there are not more than five musical notes, yet the combinations of these five give rise to more melodies than can ever be heard. There are not more than five primary colors, blue, yellow, red, white, and black, yet in combination they produce more hues than can ever be seen. I'm very curious what the five musical notes were because hmm. like, what what's a standard scale now? Is it nine notes? A, B, A, B, C, D, E, F, G... There's no H, right? I don't think so. Jesus, so seven. So I wonder if... Wait, but how many black keys are there? Are there five? There are five black keys, right? On a piano. So I wonder if those are the five that they thought of as... the. I don't know if this makes sense at all, right? Like we need, we need a music person to come. But yeah. I, that I thought was super interesting. But then the five primary colors like blue, red, and yellow, and then black and white, like blue, red, and yellow, like those are the primary colors, right? Like, did they really have that knowledge way back then? And then why, how did they have such better color literacy than Than, Greece, which like couldn't even see blue? (laughs) (laughs) I I thought that was wild. Yeah, because he got that right. The color thing, he got completely right. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, do you think that Greek thing is real? I've heard I that mean, too many times, right? But I'm not, I don't know. I just like can't believe it. It's very, it's possible. I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's just like shocking if that's true. Because they were so advanced in so many other ways. Yeah. I've ended up on Quora. Yeah, I'm on the Quora <laughs> thing too about the pentatonic scales. Quora is so bad. I just can't. It's so terrible. I can't believe answer, this still yeah. exists. <laughs> uh, okay. Traditional Chinese music is pentatonic is the most common answer you will get to this question. There were several systems in early Chinese music with instruments playing five to 12 tones. Man, why can I pay for chat GPT so I don't have to wait in this stupid <laughs> back capacity? Oh, I think they released it. I think they now have chat GPT plus. Oh, they do. It's like $20 a month. I, at least they announced it. I, I heard it was announced. I don't think you can do, I don't can pay for it yet. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's still a pilot subscription. So not yeah. everyone. Yeah. Uh, gosh. Can't come fast enough. A lot of bad jokes I could make right now. <laughs> All right, I'm signing up for the wait list. So we never have this problem again. <laughs> okay, supposedly the, it, while you guys were doing that, I was looking up the blue thing. It seems to be a myth that they... It, it's more that they didn't have like a, an equal word that we do for mm. blue. And it says, surprisingly, the word blue is simply missing from nearly all other ancient languages as well. There's no distinct word for the color in Chinese, Hebrew, or Sanskrit. Hmm. 
Rather, the color that we call blue is usually grouped in with other colors. However, Egyptians had a distinct word for blue. Interesting. Well, that sounds like it's agreeing that the color we call blue was lumped in with other colors. Because the argument for Greece is that they couldn't distinguish between blue and purple and indigo. Yeah. So we think of those as, uh, well, no, we think of indigo and violet as two separate colors, but Greece thought of them as the same. Like yeah. that, that's the version I've always heard. Yeah. They're also saying other things that Homer messed up in terms of colors. Like he refers to honey as green that's and sheep and sheep as violet. Leading 19th century academics to believe that the ancient Greeks were all colorblind. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, they could be like red, green, colorblind. Right. And then. They could make some mistakes like that. Although, how did you get honey to be green? I don't know. <laughs> so the theory, the theory was then used. Uh, does the color? But then he would theory... say that grass is yellow or something, right? Like, yeah. I mean, yellow, gold, green—they're like kind of a little bit adjacent, are they not? <laughs> okay, so this is more. This is more. Okay, so this this makes more sense. So it says. The colorblind theory was used to fuel racist arguments regarding biology of non-Europeans in the 19th century. Anthropologists took the theory about ancient Greek colorblindness and posited that modern Europeans had evolved past the ancient Greeks and could now see blue, while non-European races were biologically delayed. This theory gained even more popularity after anthropologists discovered that aboriginals living on Murray Island considered the sky to be black rather than blue. They believed that the signal the people of Murray Island lacked the capability to see color. Instead, colors in their language are categorized as light or dark on a spectrum from black to white. So to Murray Island natives, the color of the sky was just grouped with dark colors in general and didn't get its own distinct name. Linguists now believe that ancient Greeks perceived color in the same way. Huh. So they were... It's. That's weird, though, because you would still think like you would distinguish between like blue and purple, for example, right. if you could see. Yeah. Well, but if you're if it's a bluish hued of a similar darkness, then you could easily get wine stained sea. Yeah, right. Because that's true. They're both dark. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're both in that bluish category. And if you yeah. think of like grass and honey as both being light, then I guess you could see that, too, kind of right. Like. Yeah, and this article is also claiming like a translation issue because it's like we would have like we translated a word to green, but that's not actually what Homer was saying. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. A lot can change in 2,500 years. Yeah. Well, Homer might have been saying something about like the lightness, let's say, or like the like the variable that they're talking about might be different than the color. Right. He could be talking about about. like, yeah, if we if we don't think of it as um, RGB, but we think of it as like HSL or something. Right then he could have just been talking about the, is that right? HSL? Hue, saturation, lightness, right? I think so. Yeah, he could have been talking about the lightness, right? And we interpreted it as the hue or something. Yeah, because the ocean does look, like the blue of the ocean isn't the same like hue as the blue of the sky or something. Right, they do look like they could be different colors depending on where you are, right? If you're in the Caribbean, they look the same, but yeah, if you're, isn't the Mediterranean pretty light too? That's kind of surprising. That is that is surprising. Whatever. Yeah. 
anyway, this is a have you guys on that topic? Have you guys seen? I, I'm sure I've mentioned this before. Have you guys seen that video of the National Geographic researchers doing the color blindness tests on Native African tribes? No, I think this was a Nat Geo thing. It's really wild. And it, it goes to this point where they had like a little, I think it was like a computer screen and it would show 10 colors and then they would ask them to point out which of the colors was different. And so it started with like nine green squares and one blue square and they couldn't tell them apart because they, they literally saw them exactly the same, <laughs> but then they would put up nine green squares and then another like very, very, very slightly different green square that none of us could be able to tell the difference of. And they could immediately like call it out. Wow. So it's probably the same thing. They could tell the difference in lightness much more easily than they could tell the difference in hue for whatever reason. (laughs) So yeah, I wonder if that's a language thing or if that's a biology thing. I don't know. It's kind of fascinating though. I've I've heard this for, for modern people too. Women can typically see more range of colors than men can. But the explanation I've heard for that is that it's partially language based. Like most women have more words for colors than most men. And because they have more words, they end up being able to see more shades. So it's almost like it's, it goes both like, it's like a, like the knowing the words makes you more able to see the differences. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And vice versa. Probably. I guess. Yeah. Cause when you see the differences, then you want to be able to describe them. So it almost is like it, yeah. a flywheel. A little bit. Right. I'm looking at uh, stuff in the room right now, and there's a lot of things where like, I don't really know. This is like a light blue gray. It's like a steel, Yeah, that could be a violet you know? too, right? Yeah. Or, like, or you think about the dress. Remember the dress? Oh, um, yeah. The... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not convinced, I'm not convinced that was related to this. <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> a, a good follow-on book is the book we referenced at the beginning, which is Unrestricted Warfare, which is a 1999 book. Uh, published in China but like by the PLA or for the PLA. And they talk extensively about combinations in this book. They have like all these different types of warfare. And then the bulk of the book is how do you combine and recombine and recombine. Mm. And that was like this craziest parallel between Art of War and then literally 2,500 years later republished is uh, here's the basics and then just mix and match them poker style. Like the same hand play it with different strategies and then, you know, different hands play them with the same strategy. Uh, that parallel, they don't credit it, but, uh, yeah, it's pretty neat to see it reappear. Yeah. You've talked about this book so much. I've, I finally ordered it. I'm yeah. Nice. It. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you liked art of war, it's like that. But if we talk, if remember we talked about like the tactical gap in the middle yeah. of art of war, it fills in more of that, not cool. that much of it, but a bit more. Yeah. All right. Cool. So up Should next, we have Where's My Flying Car, right? Yep. I've been enjoying that. Have you guys started reading it? Yeah. I'm like, it's so good. I like it. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, I like it. It's it's a good mix of technical and sassy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's if, rare. I'm still on the first part, which is the tech history parts. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's the whole book. I don't know. But I'm like 100 pages in. I, I'm yeah. a little less. I'm probably like 80, 75, something like that. But yeah. So, okay. So, it continues with that section. But it's it's kind of crazy. Like the things we're technologically capable of for so many years. 
It's going yeah, to be a we'll, really we'll fun episode. For the episode. I'm going to say it's yeah. just a really going to be a really fun episode to do. There have already been a couple of things that I've had to go Google because I've been like, really? Like, there's no yeah. way that we could have wow. been doing this for 30 years. And it's like, oh, yeah, we could have. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tease us an example? Uh, I was thinking of the nano factories. Oh, that's right? a chapter like, I'm on right now. Oh, that's yeah. a wild chapter. Yeah. Or, Oh, where it's like makes... recreating all the structures of humanity or something like remember yeah in yeah. like a, a week or two right? yeah um and yeah he basically makes the argument that all of the advancement we've had in like computing infrastructure you know so Moore's law and you know how much more data we've been able to pack onto chips we basically could have done that with a lot of like manufacturing technology over the same period of time at a similar pace and we just didn't we like have the technology for like mass scale miniaturization and like engineering at the atomic level to start like building things at like true nanoscale. And we just didn't do it. And we've known how to do it like since Feynman. Uh, and so if we, if we had done that, then you could have a device in your house right now. That's the size of a computer that could just like 3d print anything under the sun that you could ever need in a matter of minutes. Like, wow. So like basically the Jetsons or like some other crazy futuristic thing that seems impossible. And he's like, no, the physics is basically the same as everything that's powering your computer. We just chose to work on one and not the other. Well, and then Nat, there's the whole like kind of the meta theme of the book, which is that the more you work on communication technology, the less you want to work, the less a society wants to work on real life technology. Yeah, uh, and there was like not like Moore's law, but like some related law that uh, he brought up that actually Feynman had talked about. And the thing that so far, I mean, I haven't finished the Nano Factory uh, chapter yet, but and so far what I've read about it is crazy. Uh, but the craziest thing I've I've read so far is the flight from New York to San Francisco being twenty two minutes yeah, long, twenty minutes, <laughs> yeah, and being like very doable. And basically, there's like all these graphs about airline speed and like how it very much plateaued. For non-physics reasons. Uh, yeah. yeah. So anyways, there's a lot so of interesting stuff. Yeah. And I think what he's going to get to is like regulatory issues and capture and you mm. know, um, financial incentives and whatnot. But it, the laying the groundwork for what we could have been doing in the physical world for the last 50 years is wild and kind of depressing. It sounds a lot like Peter Thiel's uh, like the world of atoms and the world. He of references that a lot. And okay. he, he's clearly influenced by Teal. He talks about um, who's the uh, Stephen, Steve Cohen. No. Cowan. Cohen? Tyler, Tyler Cohen. Tyler Cowan. Tyler right. Cowan. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It references him quite a bit. Um, there was somebody else I was just thinking of, but yeah, it it's good. <laughs> Okay, it's I'm it's pumped. like and he has an opinion which is interesting it makes it a good book to yes. talk about it's like he's written totally. it's written not as like a dry because it could also have been like a dry history of technology book like yeah you know and that'd be fine but it's not interesting to read i think the other direction that or the other topic he's getting to is like this whole this whole idea of and we've talked about this before the idea of like energy conservation is inherently like anti-progress anti yeah because like yeah basically all good things in history have happened because we increased the amount of energy an individual could harness right it's like 
you can, you know, obviously like lifespan and health span and like quality of life, but like most civil rights stuff, right? Like societal advancement. We talked about this in like any machine handbook, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, Like all the good things in history have happened because we increased the amount of energy we could use. And then in the sixties, we stopped, like it's just been flat since then. And energy usage per capita. Yeah. Yeah. Energy in in Western societies. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like that's going to be a big mm. topic, um, but it makes me excited about the the rekindling interest in nuclear that's yeah. going on right now, because it's like if we actually start dramatically increasing the amount of energy people can gain access to, then like the world gets pretty crazy pretty fast. I'm really excited. My my thesis on this topic going into it had always been that it's just easier to see returns on investment. Yeah, when it's I think not that's part of the world. Like yeah, that, yeah. I figured that was like 90% of the reason. I'm, in, I'm excited to hear this like energy argument as well. I, I think that's like one of the should, topics yeah. he's getting to though. Okay. Well, I, and I think that, and I'm, I'm just making up an assumption here. I think that part of what he's going to get to is that we, we like hamstrung energy increase. Therefore, the only way to make money was to go into the digital world. But if we had let energy usage increase through nuclear and stuff, then you could have made money building space factories and shit. But the problem is we stopped. We basically stopped progress by capping energy usage. Yeah. Like history is kind of path dependent and we forced a path essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Where all efforts have to go. Yeah. So, yeah. So that one's next. And then are we going to do Peloponnesian War? I know Adil can't join that week, but Nat, do you want to do it? I know you've already. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally down if you want to do it. I will yeah. warn you. It's a little bit of a slog. It's yeah. work. <laughs> I actually have. I, I actually did read it years ago. So it's okay. not new to me, but I'm I'm going to um, I'm obviously not going to base it off of my memory from like six years ago. So or, or however many years ago it was seven, maybe now. Yeah, there. No, I, I think that'd be a fun one to do. There, there's like a section in the middle where he just like it's very philosophical about like war and mankind. And like we could almost do a whole episode just on that. So maybe we just like use the book as like we give like the outlines of the book and then we focus on that middle section. I think we'll end up talking about the middle section a lot. Yeah. Um, And then we can pull in other parts of the book as as it goes, because you'll and you'll you'll find this when you read it, too. It's a weird book because he wrote it over like 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And then he didn't finish it. So it just (laughs) stops in the middle of a sentence. Yeah. I I remember like. He didn't finish for any particular reason. Like he didn't die. He didn't run out of money. I think he just like got bored or something. <laughs> we don't. We don't know. Obviously, he discovered TikTok. That's yeah, he discovered TikTok. <laughs> um, there and there's like nine. It's broken down into nine books, and each book has a noticeably different style to it. So it's like he wrote one section and then was like, "I don't like how I did that. I'm going to try doing it a different way this time." But then, like, didn't go back and edit the old ones. Like, it's just, it's funny. But it's also the first history book. So you can get away with a lot, right? Like, he was figuring it out as he went. Yeah. It's funny to me that he stopped in the middle of a sentence. Like, you'd think he'd at least have finished the thought, you know? (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. But no, it's cool. That'll be a good one. Yeah. All right. Well, then, if you're liking the show, uh, yeah. keep leaving reviews. I've been seeing we've been getting more and more reviews, which is awesome. I think we're at, we're at like 41 on Spotify now, which is cool. Yay. Um, so keep doing that. If you listen on Spotify, it's just a one-click thing. If you don't listen on Spotify, they don't let you leave a review, which is probably a good thing. Um, but you can leave it on you can leave it on Apple. The only thing is Apple makes you do more work, so you have to write something. Spotify is just like you can leave it two clicks, click review, click five stars, you're done. Um Tell a friend. 
tell a friend. That's always the most helpful thing you can do. Let somebody else know that you enjoyed the show. Yep. Uh, and say post on, about it on social oh, yeah. media. Say hi on Twitter if you liked the episode. I think Nat, you got reached out to. You got you got reached out to by someone who liked an episode because I was copied on the DM. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah yeah. You never responded to your fan mail. (laughs) I don't. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Okay. No, you're right. I yeah. I don't know. I not good. That's a busy uh, author though, so it's okay. It's too much fan mail. I don't know if you guys. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I like I I can respond in one or two places. And I'm not too even good places. at those. Yeah. Like there's too many places now. No, that is so true though. That is, that is definitely true. I also think it's funny that you have your like email out there and you're not. Yeah. You know, and nobody the, emails me. Yeah. Like <laughs> I, I remember everybody's like, Oh, we have to like keep our emails secret. Right. Like <laughs> oh, people are going to spam us. Nobody's going to spam you. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Although I do get some spam now from people who write like, very low budget ebooks who want them oh. talked about on TikTok. <laughs> so if that keeps increasing, I'm, I may actually have to take my email down. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> it's like, it was never a problem until I started doing TikTok. And now there's a surprising amount of people who want their like, you know, vampire smut <laughs> talked about. <laughs> are these personalized messages or are they, you, or do you think you're like on some list somewhere? I think I'm probably on some list or something. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's extra or they're just copy and pasting a template and emailing people. Like, there's probably a Gotta list of like, out. yeah, <laughs> people on TikTok who talk about books or something, and then you're just on that list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess. Alrighty, alrighty. See everyone next time. We'll see y'all next Good time. Work, team. Bye.